team go. Can we give it up for the worship team today, bringing the gifts of God and talents upon their lives? Amen. Open up your Bibles with me to John chapter 14. I'm doing the Bible in a year. I've been doing that for quite some time, and I've been going through uh, the book of Exodus and then, you know, going to Leviticus, and you start learning about everybody's role and everybody's part to play. I'm so glad that they have that part to play in singing. Amen. We can all make a joyful noise unto the Lord, but it may not be joyful unto our neighbor. So I'm glad we got both up here. Joyful unto the Lord and to our neighbor. Turn with me to John 14 and say this with me. Devil, listen to me good. Jesus is the way, he's the truth, and he's the life. Come on, you need to know how to tell the devil that. That's going to be the sermon today. I've heard this scripture used and abused by cults alike, by they try to get around this scripture, but you can't do it when it's properly interpreted. We're going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book of John. First service, second service is Hebrews, and today will be Hebrews 7, defending the tithe in the present tense because we are under the Melchizedek priesthood, not the Arianic priesthood. Oftentimes people say, well, as you teach here, the tithe, it was established under the law of Moses, but now the law of Moses has been fulfilled. Do you keep dietary laws and those things? And we say, no, we're in Christ. And they go, well, why do you keep the tithe? And most informed Christians don't know how to get around that. They'll then simply say, well, the tithe was there before the law with Abraham. But you see, that wasn't the point they were making before. They were saying the tithe was in the priesthood of Aaron. So now it backfires. But we have to explain, and this is what we've always known, this church members haven't always understood it, is that the priesthood is now Melchizedek, and there's still a tithe to Jesus, the high priest priest. Can I hear an amen? Amen. So just listen to those messages if you're not making it to that service. We're so glad that you're here today, and I encourage them to do the same. John chapter 14, verse 5. Listen to Jesus speak these wonderful words right here to answer Thomas's question. Now, this question that Thomas is asking is coming right after verse 4 when Jesus said, you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said then in verse 5, Lord, we don't know where you are going, So how can we know the way? Now, this is where you can see Jesus' patience with the disciples. He has been teaching this to them the entire time. He has explained it to them, to them where he is going, even in John 3.16. Remember, it says he came from heaven. Everybody remember John 3.16? For God so loved the world. Well, the verses right before that, he says he came from heaven. And he said no one has gone into heaven except the Son of Man who came from heaven. So he's been explaining this to them from the very beginning. There shouldn't be a confusion, but I think thank God for the patience of Jesus. So Thomas hears about the Lord going somewhere and that there's a way that he's going to go there. Thomas says, I don't even know where you're going, let alone how to get there or the way to get there. And then Jesus answered in what is one of the most profound statements of the scripture. Would you highlight it, please? And let's say it together. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is good Bible teaching pointing us to the Trinity. Let me read the rest of this context, and then we'll get into that discussion. But that is the text for today. Verse 7, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now Philip pipes up, and he said, Lord, show us the Father, and then that will be enough for us. Once again, these disciples missing the point. 
He has been explaining to them all along that he and the Father are one. How many remember reading that with me? John chapter 10, I and the Father are one. He's already said those things to them. But now they're saying, show us the Father, show us the Father, and then we'll believe everything that you're saying and we'll understand it better. Verse 9, Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the what? The Father, thank you. How can you say, show us the Father, Philip? You should know better than that. And all the oneness Pentecostals go, yee that's what we've been saying. The Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, they're all one person in different manifestations. Just like Joe, your pastor, is a father to his children, a son to his father, and a pastor to you, but one person. That's how God is. God is a father and sometimes, in uh, some ways, he's a son in other ways and a Holy Spirit in other ways. See, that's what he's telling you. No, put on the brake, oneness heretic. Put on the brakes. This is not saying what you think it says, because look at the very next verse, verse 10. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? Does he say, now that don't you know that I am the Father? No, he doesn't say, I am the Father. He says, I am in the Father. So when it says in the previous chapter that me and the Father, Jesus speaking, are one, and then here he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he can't be talking about their personality. He must be talking about their nature because in the very next verse, he talks about two persons sharing unity with each other. Does everybody see how verse 10 puts on the brakes to oneness heresy? If they want to say from verse 9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, that means they're the same person. Why does he in the next verse say that I as a person and the Father as another person are in each other? And then look, the words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Well, I thought you were the Father, so you are speaking on your own authority, and you're doing ventriloquism when he speaks from heaven, and you're getting baptized. We're on the mountain of transfiguration. You're really doing all of this yourself, and this is my son. Thank you. I know I'm your son. And then here comes the Holy Spirit, and then I do this over here. It's like a puppet show with the, the Father, Son, and Spirit as manifestations. It's a oneness heresy. Don't believe it. Are you listening? This does not make their point. It destroys their point, actually. I love going to the places where heretics love the most and then blowing them up for Jesus Christ, uh, for his gospel. Amen? Yes, we blow up people's arguments, but we love them. Amen? So Jesus blows up people's arguments. He just demolishes them. Listen to the context. He just said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That can't mean they're the same person because in the very next verse, he says, I as a person and the Father share unity with each other. We're in each other. And then the words that I speak, Jesus talking here, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. doesn't say they're the same person. Now look at verse 11. Believe me, notice the person of Jesus, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the work themselves. Verse 12, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and all the Pentecostals said amen. Come on, that's why we believe in the boom shakalaka power of God, because we're going to do in Christ's name what he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's not something a Baptist should get mad about. A Baptist should become a Bapticostal. Amen? A Baptist should join with us and go, I want to do some of that. I want to do the works of Jesus. These things didn't die off. The Holy Spirit's not here. Uh, the Holy Spirit's still here. He didn't give us an expiration date. Amen? 
Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater works than these. I believe that's a number, not in kind. How can you get greater than raising the dead? Okay? It's just more of these things. Jesus had a three-year ministry, and we can be around here for a while. Now, notice what he says again. Because I'm going to myself. Is that what he says? No, I'm going to the what? The Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You see the persons there, Father and Son. And hello, Holy Spirit, coming up in just the next few verses. We'll get to those, Lord willing, in the weeks to come. You may ask for anything in my name, and I will do it. And the anything is prefaced by the will of God and what God has for us. Now, going back up to the top there. I want to explain a few more things about what the heretics tried to do with this verse before we get into the application with our our lives and how this applies to us. The first thing that I want you to see is that oneness Pentecostalism tries to say that the Trinity goes against these verses, but I believe you have clearly seen that these verses support, support the Trinity, not oneness. There is still the distinct persons of the Father and Son. Does everybody see that? Now then, our friends, the Jehovah Witnesses, who are Arians, who believe that the Father alone is God, and then he creates the Son as a lesser God, and then through that lesser God, Jesus creates everything else, they will then say that, hey, you guys have a point here. You guys got us right here. But then they'll say, go to verse 28, and please put it up in our Bible app. They'll say, but hold on, you oneness Pentecostal and Trinitarians. You both agree that Jesus has deity. One believes it's the same person of the Father manifesting in the Son and the Trinity. You guys believe it's three persons sharing the same deity. Uh, but here, I'm going to show you that it can't be Jesus is equal to the Father and deity because look at John 14, 28. You have heard me say I'm going away and where I'm going, uh, excuse me, and, and where I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than what? See, they'll say, read the rest of it. Now the, fa- the Father is greater than I, so he can't be equal. So oneness and Trinitarians, you guys are wrong, we're right. Do you understand now how we have to go back to that passage and this passage and explain that they're wrong? And that this false doctrine of Arianism, which was very tempting for the early church to believe, is not uh, false just because the church fathers said it was false. It's false because it goes against the very context of Scripture. How can Jesus say that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and John 10 also say, I and the Father are one, and then here in John chapter 14, verse 28, say that the Father is greater than him? How can you say all those things? Every one of the major positions, whether it's the Trinity, the oneness, or the Arians, now have to answer these scriptures. The oneness is going to run into a bigger problem than all of us. Because the oneness is going to say there is no distinction in persons. There's just manifestation. Just like how Joe sometimes is a son when he shows up with his father and hangs out with his dad. That's the same person as Joe when he goes home and he's a father to his kids. They're going to have the biggest problem because how can one of those manifestations be greater than the other? And Jesus is clearly saying the Father is greater than I. Did he not say that? Now, some will like to run to the Greek and try to change it up. No, greater is greater. I is I. It's all there. It says exactly what you would read in the English. So where are the Arians now? Well, the Arians are going to have the problems that we've had from the whole entire book of John. My father and I are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. That's the correct interpretation of pros, ton, theon. The, the words there are in the predicate nominative describing the logos. Okay, this is all supportive of our position, John 1.18. No one has ever seen God but the Son, the one and only God. Monogenes theos has made him known. He's at the Father's side. All of this is in support of the Trinity. But here we have this little passage, John 4. 1428 sticking out 
And it almost seems to put a problem in, the, in you know, a little pebble in our shoe. But it's not true because listen to what we have always said as Trinitarians. They are equal in their nature but not always in their authority. Why is that? Does the Father take on flesh? No. If Jesus is in the flesh, how much of the flesh submits on this planet to the Father? All of it. The Bible says in the prophets, all flesh submits to God. So what do you want Jesus to do, to be an atheist? How is the Father greater than him? He has greater authority while Christ is on earth as a man in the flesh. Does everybody get that? We believe in this thing called the incarnation. So as Jesus is in the flesh, does he have to obey the Father like any other flesh would have to obey the Father? Father? Absolutely. He can't run around and be rogue. How is that an example for us if Jesus is a rogue human being? Well, I'm God. I made this place. I can do whatever I want. The Father then would say, you're not setting the example for the people. The people have to follow me. Why are you not following me? So when he says, I have greater authority, that's what he means. Now, somebody might say, prove it. I can prove it very simple. When God created Adam and Eve, did he not give man the authority over the woman, over the house, the head? Was not the man in charge? But is he of a different nature than the woman? Is a woman a different kind of human being? No, they're both equal in nature as human beings, but different in authority. So can two people have the same nature, but then different authority? Yeah, we can even see that now. You and I have the same nature, but do we have the same authority in this building? No, I'm in charge of this building by God's grace with the elders. I walk outside that door. Police officer, are we of the same nature? Yes, we're of the same nature, meaning the police officer. But do we have the same authority on the streets? No, they have more authority. That's all Jesus is saying. Father is greater than I. Why would he say that? He's saying that because in his incarnation, the Father has authority to dictate what he does. That's why he prays to the Father. That's why he asks things from the Father. That's why he says, not my will, but your will be done. What is the con conflict of will? It's certainly not within the divine will, the divine Son and the divine Father. It's the will of the flesh. It's the will of the flesh that's about ready to suffer. Jesus had real flesh that said, get me out of here. <laughs> the flesh is hearing, the brain is hearing the prophecy is about ready to come to pass. And the flesh is saying to Jesus, get me out of here. Just like how your brain talks to you and says, get me out of here. Right? It doesn't mean there's two different persons of Jesus or there's two different persons of you. It's just the flesh and the brain has instinct. It has volition. Animals know to do certain things, even though they're not a person like us. And so your flesh is even more complex than that of animals. Look at all the study of the brain and all the things that the brain does without even your permission half the time. You dream. The brain does that. You don't do that. You didn't decide to dream on that unless God intervenes, right? You try to sometimes stop your dream. You can't stop your dream. Sometimes I'm having a fun dream that turns into a nightmare, and I go, why do you do that to me? I'm flying, I'm having fun, and all of a sudden big eagle tries to come and eat me, and I'm like, no, I don't like that. Go back to the flying part. Why am I going to be eaten now by an eagle or something? You know what I'm saying. Because your brain's doing stuff. Your brain pulls back your hand from the fire before you need to tell it to do that. So Jesus, when he says, not my will, but your will be done, it's not a conflict of wills among the divine nature. It's the flesh of Jesus. That's why he said in 28, the Father is greater than I. I'm serving the Father. But if you read John 17 in the prayer, which is all here, 14, 15, 16, 17, Jesus says to the Father, restore unto me the glory that I had before the world even began. What kind of creature has glory with the Father before the world even began? Only one that's equal with the Father. And so that's where you can understand this. So putting to rest those two heresies, find peace in the Trinity, my brothers and sisters. It didn't come from pagan philosophers trying to add it into Christianity. And they say, well, show me the word Trinity in the Bible. Show me oneness in the Bible. Show me Arianism in the Bible. Show me what you believe. You know, we're not looking for the words. We're not falling for the fallacy of exact words. What we're looking for is what is taught. What is the doctrine? 
And the doctrine is, going back to our notes, is that Jesus has equality with the Father. But there's something different about Jesus that is not true of the Father. This is what makes them distinct. We've never seen the Father, but we're seeing Jesus. And that is mind-blowing. Go to John 1.18, please, beginning of the book. Now understand, John started his gospel to explain all the things that we're in right now. So it's good to go back to his introduction and understand how this plays into the teachings we're hearing from Jesus. Now at the time, the disciples, as we're reading chronologically the gospel of John, didn't understand these things. But now John, after the resurrection, John, after the baptism of the Holy Spirit, writing his gospel inspired, tells you from chapter 1 who Jesus is and how Jesus is going to reveal that to you throughout the book. Can I hear an amen? So how many are following John's thought process as he's being inspired by the Holy Spirit? Look at what he says. Let's just go through the three main ones together. We'll go to one one. In the beginning was the Word. Word was with God. Word was God. According to John, the Word being Jesus is equal to who? God. Now go to one fourteen, And the Word became what? Flesh. Did the Father become flesh? Did the Holy Spirit become flesh? No. So according to John... The word, Jesus, is equal with the Father, equal with the Spirit of Yahweh, the Shekinah, the presence of God, the Ruach, okay? The the Father and Son and Spirit are equal in that way. John understands this, but he's explaining the word, the Son, he's manifested in the flesh and made his dwelling among us, which literally there means dwelling among us, tabernacled alongside of us. He came and pitched his tent next to you, brother. Anybody staying over here? I'm just going to come be be next to you, come into the tent. That's what it means. He made his dwelling. That's where they get the idea of tabernacle in the Old Testament. Tabernacle means a place of dwelling. And the presence of God would be there by a pillar of fire at night and cloud by day over there, the Ark of the Covenant. And remember, when God told that to Moses, he said, that's a replica of what's in heaven. You're making a replica of what's in heaven. Amen? And so now Jesus brings the centerpiece, which is himself. The Father has exalted the Son to be the centerpiece of heaven. That's the desire. It wasn't even for the Father to be the centerpiece, and it wasn't for the Holy Spirit. The Father made Christ the centerpiece, okay? So now he sends his centerpiece down to earth. And the Bible says the Word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. Notice it doesn't say we've seen the Father's glory. See, everyone that believes like an Arian says that Jesus borrows glory. Just like you borrow glory. The Bible says you'll be glorified. How many are going to be glorified? Amen. And then it talks in that way about us, but it's always borrowed glory. It's not intrinsic to ourselves. But here the Bible says Jesus has glory intrinsic of his own nature. We have beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only son, the Mago Ganesh, the one that no one is like. There's, like, there's angels that are like other angels. There are humans that are like other humans. Y'all listening to me? But there's nobody like the Son of God. He's one and only. Who came from the Father full of grace and truth. No one's ever done that. Even angels don't come proceeding from the Father in this way. They can come on a journey to be a messenger, but this one is forever proceeding from the very nature of God. As one theologian said, it's as if the streams of God have always been in continuous flow. The Father to the Son, and then the Father and Son to the Holy Spirit. There has been a procession of the divine nature in his eternal, uh, in his eternal past. Can I hear an amen? 
The Bible says he's been proceeding from the Father from of old in Micah. And the Holy Spirit has been proceeding between them, which you get into the filioque, which is a debate. Does the Holy Spirit only proceed from the Father? So the Father's at the top of the triangle, and Son and Holy Spirit come out? Or does the Father and Son proceed out, the, the Holy Spirit proceed out from the Father and Son? Has anybody ever heard that the debate before? It split an entire system of church churches, the Roman Catholics to the Greek Orthodox, filioque. Okay? Now, what does it say here? It says that the Son came and showed us his glory. But how did he come? He came in the flesh, and he came with grace and truth. Now, 118. No one, going back to his, uh, Exodus chapter 33, when Moses asked to see God's face, but he couldn't. No one, in verse 18, has ever seen God. But I thought Abraham saw God, uh, Genesis 18 on the plains of Mamre. I thought Moses met with God face to face, same chapter. Let's just go. There. We, we got to show Exodus. How many like Exodus? 33. Go there to Exodus 33. Always good to show this. Because it's a, a contradiction to Jewish people who don't understand and the persons of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is in their own book. Go scroll down just a little bit for me, please. Keep on going here. Now let's pause right here. Verse 11. Yahweh, the Lord, would speak to Moses How? Face to face, as one speaks to a friend. So you speak to your friend face to face, right? I mean, that's how you would understand it. Then Moses would return to camp, but his young age, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Now go down a little bit here in verse, uh, chapter 33 to the following verses. He's going to say, I want to see your glory. Keep on going down, please. Verse 18, show me your glory. Now notice this right here. Verse 20, but he said, you cannot see my face, for no one can see my face and live. Hold on, I thought it just said in the same exact chapter, Moses would talk to God all the time face to face. What is happening here? The same thing that we saw when Jesus came to earth. We saw Jesus all the time, but did we see the Father? No, Moses is having a relationship with the triune God. He's always with Jesus face to face, but from time to time he hears the Father talking. Just like on the mountain of transfiguration, everybody saw Jesus glow brighter than the sun, right? Everybody saw that, but then they heard the Father. Now, imagine Moses saying, I want to see that one. Okay, I've seen you, but I want to see that one. That's when the Father goes, you can't see my face and live. And that's it. The only one up until this point who has beheld the health face of the Father is Jesus. After Christ's resurrection, or death, burial, and resurrection, he led captivity into the presence of God. Now they can see the face of the Father. Before that, in the Old Covenant, they were in what was called Abraham's bosom, waiting for the redemption to make them righteous to be in the face of the Father. Can I hear an amen? They weren't allowed in up until that point. Christ brought them in. Now they can see the face of the Father. If you die now, you see the face of the Father. Now going back to 118, please. No one has ever seen God. That's a promise from the Scripture, John 1.18. No one has ever seen God. But, now notice the but here in John. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself what? God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So what do we say to those? who now try to say Jesus is less than the Father. We say, no, he's equal with the Father. Going back to our notes today, when Jesus is saying to Philip and to Thomas and them, you know the way, you know where I'm going, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he is not saying I and the Father are the same person. What he is saying is if you have seen me, you have seen the nature of the Father. You have seen everything that the Father stands for. That's how you know that I'm from the Father as I do everything he does. Amen? There shouldn't be any confusion now over those two heresies. I just want to make sure I said it clearly for everyone. Those who say this is Jesus affirming oneness doctrine, that he and the Father are the same person, you see in the preceding verses of chapter 14, 10 and onward, as you can scroll down there for me, please, in the notes, they are not the same person. Jesus is obviously talking about someone else, but they are in perfect unity. Amen? Everybody see that? 
Okay? Then against the Arian doctrine who says, okay, we give you a point there, but now you have a problem with the Father being greater than Jesus. He says that in verse 28. We clearly show them out of the plethora of scriptures that they are blown up every which way, and then this one out of all of them that they think sides with them actually makes our point perfectly that it makes perfect sense that Jesus would have lesser authority while on earth in the flesh than the Father. But this would not diminish his nature in any way. Can I hear an amen? When I attend my children's tea party and they're the waiter and they're in charge and they own the restaurant, are my children now in greater nature than me? No, they're just in charge of that tea party. When Jesus came to do the flesh and he said the Father is greater than him, does that mean the Father has a different kind of nature than him and that the Father is greater in his being than the Son? No, that would go against everything John has taught us. John has taught us clearly that Jesus is equal to God, that Jesus represents God. And is that a New Testament concept only? No, it's seen all throughout the Old Testament. Can I hear an amen? So there you go. Now, I want to go to secularism. This idea that people think they can get around the way, the truth, and the life. Would you go up there for me, please? Today in modern secularism, and we'll get to the application. Uh, it's, it's going to be up further, my brother. Verse 6, I believe. You're going the wrong direction. Thank you. Way, the truth, and the life. Now, everyone, listen to me, please. You live in a pluralistic society where everybody wants to be right, wants to include everybody into the discussions of religion, and to affirm everybody, and the only one that is excluded is the one who says, I have the objective truth. As long as you stand up on subjectivity, you're welcome at the barbecue. The moment you say there's a right and a wrong, you're no longer included. So in other words, they are diverse up until the point where someone says, I don't agree with your diversity. Amen. Just like I showed you before last week, and I put it on my Facebook page, where the LGBT church in Chicago says a place where you can be yourself, they only mean that up until a certain point. Because right now, I want to be myself and preach in your pulpit this message of holiness. Will you let me be my Pentecostal holiness self up in your pulpit? <laughs> Amen. And then I said to, to, uh, to the more sadistic mind, a molester may say, may I be myself with your children. A Muslim terrorist, ISIS, may, may say, can I be myself here with my jihad, right? And so they, they only mean that to an extent. These kinds of memes and these surface-level statements uh, draw in the night. Naive. And brothers and sisters, do not be naive. Amen. But now we are in this secularistic society. We are in a culture war, mostly lost, but we're not. Uh, we may be down, but we're not out. I believe we're, there's still hope for Jesus in this nation. Amen. But let's be honest. They've taken over our spheres of influence, our educational spheres, our um, governmental spheres. They are there, large and in charge. And we got to be honest, okay? If, if we're down at the halftime, I'm not going to lie to you as a coach. We're down, okay? But we're not out. Amen. I know some quarterbacks that can throw the ball. I know some receivers that can catch it and run. Let's get up and do it. Amen. This is why you're here for such a time as this. What an exciting time. We were made for this. The early church was birthed out of this kind of pluralism. So as I said before, when people say to us, oh, what are you going to do now, Christian? I'm going to do what we've always done, whether by life or by death. May Jesus have the glory. Amen. I'm going out preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to fill stadiums to either watch us be martyred or for revival, but we'll meet you there in Jesus' name. We're not ashamed to be Christians. But when you say this verse to them, they'll be offended. 
What do you mean, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life? What about Buddha? What about him? Buddha had already lived at this time. Christ and his nature preexisted Buddha. He's Buddha's creator, right? But, but on the timeline, they'll be right. You know, in Christ's carnation, in him coming to flesh, this is after Buddha. But now listen, if Jesus wanted to include Buddha, he would have said, hey, I and Buddha are the way, the truth, and the life. Him making these statements are very clear. He is saying it's not Buddha. It's not anybody you've ever met. It's no one else that can ever possibly be on this earth. He's saying exclusively, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And people get upset by that. They want you to capitulate to their burden of inclusivity, to the, to the pain of truth. They want truth to suffer so that they can be your friend. And here's the sad part about that, is I know you want to be their friend. I want to be their friend. I mean, let's just be honest. We shout and holler in church, but, you know, let's just be honest. It hurts us, doesn't it, when our cousin comes out LGBT? Doesn't that hurt us? And isn't there a part of us that seeks reconciliation? I just heard recently about a, another pastor being in the ministry. His wife left him for another woman. They had been in ministry over 20, almost 30 years. Doesn't that break your heart? That breaks my heart. So, I, I mean, I just don't want to shout at her, hey, did you know Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And if you don't repent of your, your, your sin, you're going to hell. You're sedition against God. You're going to, you're a rebel. Oh, well, there may be a time for that, but my heart breaks. I wish there was some kind of reconciliation. I wish they could live out their truth and be happy. But now their truth is in opposition to God. And so now when I say to them, well, Jesus said, well, 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 hold on. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. They want to argue with that. Well, I have my truth, and he has his. I've heard people actually say that back. Jesus is no longer sacred. Everybody can have their own truth. Now you hear the New Age saying, well, we're all the way, the truth, and the life. That's what the New Agers say. As Jesus found his truth, and as Jesus found his way, and as Jesus found his life, he was telling that to others. And that's what we all need to say. We all need to say, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Is that true? Do we all need to say that? No, of course not. When I look to my friends that are suffering with this pluralism in our culture, I go back to this scripture. And if we exegete it properly, we can give them all that they need. Let me just exegete it for them, and then we'll go to you. Amen? But if it steps on your toesy-woesies in the meantime, we're glad that you're here as well, okay? So if anybody here is pluralistic in your belief system, hear this. Number one, when Jesus said, I am the way, what Jesus was referring back to is the way of holiness in Isaiah. Go to Isaiah chapter 35, verse 8. All the prophets had spoke about this way of truth and this way of living, this high way of holiness. And yet it's Isaiah who draws out the picture beautifully to give us an idea of what's really to be looking forward to. What should the Israelites and the people joined to Israel, like us through the true Jew, Jesus Christ, engrafted in? What should we be looking forward to? Isaiah 35, 8. And a highway will be there, and it will be called the way of what? Compromise. Is that what it says? And it shall be called the way of what? Diversity. I'm messing with y'all. And it shall be called the way of holiness. Hallelujah. That means separation. No one like it, nor anyone could ever come close to it unless you go on this way. So there may be other paths. They may look the same in some, in some ways, but they're not even comparable. The way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. So you're on the way of holiness in a way. So you're in a way on this road called the way. Does everybody see that? 
There's a highway called the way of holiness, and you're walking on that way. You're walking in that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. Sometimes people get mad at me when I call them a wicked fool. Would you highlight that for me, please? Where do I get these words from? Where do I get them from? I don't know. Am I just like, am I just a mean pastor? Am I an angry guy? Am I just a name caller? Or do I kind of borrow words from the scripture? Is it okay if we call people at times wicked fools? You wicked fool. How dare you call me that? Well, I'm just using some adjectives and descriptions of your behavior right now. The Bible gives me permission to do so. Now, can I do that without the love of God in my heart? Of course not. In Matthew, it says, anyone who calls his brother a fool without cause. Look at the variation in the King James. It's important there. Without cause is in danger of hellfire. How do I know it has to be there to understand that? Because later on in Matthew 23, he calls the Jewish people fools over and over and over again. He's not contradicting himself in a few chapters, okay? The idea is we do not speak these things without cause. We don't do it just because somebody cut us off in traffic. You wicked fool. You don't get mad at your customers and hang up on them. That was a wicked fool, you know. <laughs> you don't just do it without cause. There has to be a righteous reason for such language. Otherwise, then it's meaningless. You're just, you're just saying words. They have no more meaning. If you hear me say to someone they're a wicked fool, you should be like, oh, okay. We just went there. This is important. Everybody listen to the next thing Joe's going to say about this wicked fool. Let's test now if it's appropriate to be having that person called a wicked fool. You shouldn't be so casual with me and go, well, he just calls everybody that. It's not true. I call people that who are that. And there's a definition for that. And then you use that phrase to make a point. What is the point of Isaiah? Is that wicked fools who live like this won't be on that way. Amen? No lion will be there for those who are afraid of lions, no in, nor any ravenous beasts like hyenas and those kinds of things. They will not be found there. But only the what? The redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion. This is this place that is spoken of in Scripture that's like Jerusalem but even greater. And we see it in, in Revelation coming down from heaven. This wonderful place. They will enter Zion with singing everlasting joy. Hallelujah will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sign will, feel, will flee away. Somebody say the way. Amen. I'll go back to our scripture here. Jesus says, I am the way. I'm not just pointing you to that. I am that. Isn't that beautiful? Let that just encourage you today, especially those of you who are dealing with the pluralistic society. You feel like you're ostracized. You feel like they don't get you. Listen, it's because they reject Jesus, and you've got to tell them this. Not everybody gets to walk on this road. I'm sorry. It's the truth. I love my children, but when they give a math equation that's wrong, an answer that's wrong, I have to say it's wrong because there is a way to answer a math equation. How many agree with that? How many, how many agree that there's truth in the world, right? There's ways in the world, and there's ways that are right, and there's ways that are wrong. And then the first thing you can do to somebody that ever, that ever says back to you a pluralistic argument, you can just turn it right back to them. So they say, well, I don't believe there's only one way. The, the way you just told me right now, is that the way? Because you just told me you don't believe in only one way. Now, is that your one way? Don't be slow in church. Get it. You turned it back on them. 
I don't believe there is only way. Is there one way? Does everybody get that? I don't believe in absolute truth. Do you believe what you just said? Absolutely. This will rock the smartest so-called person in your life. I'm telling you, professors, PhD, they don't think like this because they don't know how to put their claims back to themselves. They spout off this nonsense and they want you to believe it because they do a lot of other smart things in life. Look what I've done in this, look what I've done in this lab and now I'll speak a bunch of philosophical nonsense. Even those in science, other scientists tell these scientists, stay in the lab with the lab coat because you're making us look bad the moment you start doing philosophy. You don't know, like Richard Dawkins and, and, and uh, Lawrence Krauss and these, they say, get away from philosophy. Just tell us what you know about the science and let the philosophers do their part. Other atheists are saying that because they can see the ridiculousness in their statements. When someone says, I don't believe in there being only one way, just ask them back, is that your one way? The belief that there's not only one way. You see, they don't understand. Everybody has a foundation, a presupposition, an axiom of belief. And what we're saying is that Jesus, the person, is the way. Yes, I love the church, but the church itself is not the way. It points to the way. The Bible says it's a pillar and foundation of the truth, but it is not itself the truth. So can these pillars give way? Yes, sadly they can. But Jesus cannot give way. Now, if Jesus made a promise and the gates of hell won't prevail against this church, I believe the church will continue on. But can certain leaders in the church and church organizations fail? Absolutely. All along the way of the church of Jesus Christ, his people being brought from generation to generation. And it's the same thing here. When I say Jesus is the way, I'm not saying everything people have done in the name of religion is the way. But how are we going to critique what they've done? We're certainly not going to do it by the pluralistic handbook because the pluralistic handbook says Nazis were just living out their truths. If there's not a way for a nation to be, then why are you critiquing them to begin with? If there's not one the way, then what are you critiquing them by? If I said to you, this is 12 inches, how many of you would think that's a little off? Hey, this is 12 inches. What would you need to show me that this is not 12 inches? A ruler, right? So when someone says, I don't like that way and I don't like this way, then that means they need a standard. So what is your standard? Well, I, I, I'm figuring it out. Well, you seem to be quite the hypocrite in the meantime. You seem to be pushing on your beliefs onto others while you yourself don't have a standard. And why do we believe that people do this? Because they borrow from the Christian worldview. We believe, like the Bible says, they all suppress the truth. Like in Romans, it's like a ball in the water. If you've ever been to the pool and you've got a ball and you're trying to push it down, what does it always want to do? It wants to come back up. So the whole creation has the thumbprint of God, the conscience of God, and they're trying to push it down as much as they can, but they know they can't, and then it just keeps popping back up. So when we say to them, there's a way, and that Jesus is the way, that's our foundation. Now, if they want to give an eternal critique of our foundation, then I'm absolutely okay with that. And where will generally the pluralists go to try to critique our foundation? To the judgment stories of the Old Testament and the ones in the New Testament. But is that inconsistent with Jesus being the way? No, we actually go to the story of Isaiah, uh, the prophecy there, and we go, it's always been a part of our belief system. There's people not on this way. So uh, Noah's uh, generation, they must not have been on that way if he blew them up with the flood. Is that, is that inconsistent? You may not like it, but it's not inconsistent. My God says there's a way. He said that there are people who go on a different way. He said he punishes those who go on that different way. There you go. Nothing inconsistent about it. So why are you mad, right? And then why is the potter getting mad at the pot? Or the, why is the pot getting mad at the potter? Did you forget who you were? Did you create yourself? I know you think science is your God. I believe in science. You know, where did science come from, right? 
So we show them very quickly the internal, the internal critique of the scriptures is solid. Now it's just whether or not you agree. We never said you had to agree. We just wanted to make sure that you understood. So you share with them. Jesus is the way. Why is he the way? He's the creator. He made everything. It's his planet. He decides who's a wicked fool and who's not. Going back, please, to Isaiah, if you could put it up there, verse 35, uh, chapter 35, verse 8. Don't they think we're wicked fools? Isn't that what they call us when we preach in front of the abortion clinic? I mean, they use that language towards us. So what's your standard? We're both calling each other wicked fools. You say it not so nice, right? Mine is at least without all these other four-letter words in there. But fool is a four-letter word, I guess. But you get my point. Blankety, blank, 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 blank. They can't use any real words with descriptions to them. The F word has no description. No, I don't want to have sex with my mother, so stop saying mother effort. That doesn't make any sense, right? I'm not a female dog. How many know those words are nonsensical, right? They don't describe things. Here's something that describes things. You're wicked. That means you're outside of God's way, and you're a fool because you're being dumb on purpose. That describes who you are. Now, they both use, both sides use this language, the one who stands on the truth of God and the pluralist. But we now ask them to critique their worldview. Where is your ruler? Where is your standard? We're giving you ours. It's the person of Jesus. The next one we hear is that Jesus says, thank you, my brother, going back to the notes. He says, I am the truth. Very similar to the way. He says, I am the truth. Go to Psalm chapter 25, verse 5. When I speak to Jewish people and I ask them who they believe the Messiah is, they either say they don't know or some person that has failed miserably. On my way here to church, there is a billboard for the Rebbe. The Orthodox Jews, some of them still believe that this man known as the Rebbe, R-E-B-B-E, was the Messiah. Now, everything they say against our Jesus actually is against him. They say our Jesus, if he was truly the Messiah, would have brought world peace before he left the earth. So if there's still not world peace, he couldn't be the Messiah. This man came and died, and there's not world peace. So what's, what are you going to say about that, right? But then we say, our Jesus came in the time of the second temple. That fulfills Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. Amen? We then show them that the temple was destroyed, and they can no longer have the ritualistic rites. That's because God's judgment was upon them, and the people of God have become the temple of God since the Messiah. What is your reason for the destruction of the temple and not having a temple for 2,000 years? So our Jesus can be the only Messiah, right? But here's this problem that they normally deal with is that you deify this man. They think we're deifying a man. We're not deifying a man. God became a man. Does everybody get the difference? We're not, I want everybody to talk with me. We're not saying this man became God. We're not saying a person named Jesus became God. That's what New Age believes. That's what Hinduism can teach and so forth and so on. We're not saying Jesus did X, Y, and Z and upgraded to divinehood or divinity. We're saying God became a man. How many understand the difference? Amen. Look at it. Psalms chapter 25, verse 5. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my what? Savior. Because how many know the moment you know God's truth, you need to have someone save you from breaking it all the time? So here we see commonly throughout the scripture, God has truth, God gives truth, but he's more than than that. He's also our cover-up, our redemption, our forgiveness for the times we don't live in truth. And my hope is in you all day long. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth. And how many can say amen to that? (laughs) How many can say, Lord, please don't remember the sins of my youth. Church kids living holy, I pray you never have to say that. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you, Lord, are good. So the Bible says God gives truth, and Jesus now says he is the truth. How can you test it? Did Jesus ever tell a lie? No. Go through the scriptures. Did Jesus make prophetic announcements? 
Yes, about the temple. I was debating a Muslim the other day, and he said, I got to give that to you. He did it. We have the records. There's no way around it. To the point where secular textual critics tried to date the Gospels to be written after the temple being destroyed to say they did it as an after fact and put it in Jesus' words, as if someone was writing a book saying they prophesied 9-11, but they found out the book was written in 2010. But guess what our manuscripts say? It was there beforehand. We have the records. Jesus prophesied. Jesus told us the truth about heaven. What did Jesus ever contradict of the Old Testament? What did Jesus ever contradict of human nature? Jesus said that we need a Savior. Do you believe we need a Savior in this world? Jesus said that we have to be born again because anything we do is external and it doesn't bring internal change. How many people know that we need internal change? A rebirth of sorts, right? How many people know we need authority over demons? My demons, everybody sings about them now, but where's the authority over them? What did Jesus ever say that was an error? No one could even point out an error in Jesus' lifetime. Jesus would stand up in front of the crowds and say, if any of you can convict me of sin, speak now. How many know I as a pastor am not saying that? I can say I've been forgiven of all sins. I'm above reproach of those sins because I've handled them correctly. But there's no way I could stand up here and say, if anybody knows if I've ever sinned, come talk to me or say something public. It would be like a line. And now it's my turn. Is this thing on? Long list comes out. He sinned here. He sinned here. He sinned here. You know? How many know I couldn't even do that in my house? If any of my kids have ever seen me sin, let me know now and then expect there to be silence. No, my kids would be like, okay, Dad. (laughs) 2013, when I was about two and a half years old, you sinned against me. I kind of remember it, but mom always reminds me of it. You sinned against me. Yeah, but Jesus stood up in front of the crowds. As a matter of fact, in our stories and in the Jewish records, the only thing they could convict him on was claiming to be a king. That was it. There was nothing else that they could convict him on. When they said like he was going to destroy the temple, that was all metaphorical. He didn't mean like he was literally going to destroy it, but what was he talking about? His body. Amen? And then lastly, what does Jesus say? I'm the life. How many people you argue with uh, have life? How many of the people you argue with have life? All of them, right? Where did that come from? Oh, it came from the goo through the zoo to you. That's how we got here. No, no, no. That's a, that's a fairy tale for adults to believe who don't want to be accountable to God. It's, it's not science. It's science fiction. Amen? They say we have faith. They have make-believe. I have faith. You have make-believe. That goo did not come alive and make you. Even if science could show such a thing, it would be nearly impossible without the guidance of God. Are you listening to me? Because I have Christian friends, good Christian friends, that are are evolutionists. They believe that God guided it because without that uh, guidance, it would be impossible. And this is true. This is true. But my friends, let me ask you something. When you argue with someone that doesn't believe Jesus is the life, where do they say their life comes from? They normally say something silly, right? Like science, you know, my mom, this and that. Well, where'd your mom come from? Well, her mom. Well, where'd the moms come from? Let's just, you know, get right to the point. All of them come to a point where they don't even know where life comes from. I remember arguing with one young man, and I said to him, well, how do you even know you exist? And he said, I don't know if I exist. I could be in the matrix, et cetera. You know, I got him on this point to think existentially. And he said, I don't even know if I exist. And he wanted to keep arguing with me. And I said, hold on. <laughs> I don't hold debates with people who don't even know if they exist. <laughs> I'm not entering into your metaverse to have an argument and this possibly get deleted tomorrow, okay? You have at least, this this, this, this is the bare minimum now for you and I to have to have an argument. You have to believe you actually exist. Well, without God, they're in an endless regress, are they not? This thing banged, and then that banged, and then the multiverse banged, and then this, and they have no way to even get to point of life. 
Where did it come from? Where did the information come from? Why does it sustain itself? Why does internal life relate to external life? Why do the thoughts inside of my chemical brain relate to matter, space, and time out in the world? Why do I have insight into your mind and I can't read your mind? Why is it I see patterns of behavior and emotions and thoughts? And men are still trying to figure out women. Can I hear an amen? We're still trying to figure you all out. I've, I've been with my wife now 17 years and I'm writing my book, How to Understand a Woman, and I'm still stuck on the first page. A woman is this when she thinks like, I can't even get beyond, at least I know what a woman is, but I don't know how a woman thinks, you know? A woman feels like that. I don't know any of that, but I'm trying. I'm trying to figure it out. Every day I'm calculating this, you know. Okay, so when she's pregnant and she's like this, she's like this, then don't say this. But on days you have to say this because then you get in trouble. You know what I'm saying? So I'm calculating all of these variances, uh, variance in equations, you know. It's like playing chess times 12, you know, like a chess board with a million pieces on it. Move this one here, and I'm like looking. Can I, can I do this? No, no, no. Don't move that one there. Don't say that here. Hold me. Don't hold me. Okay, it's hot. It's cold, right? This is what it's like with a pregnant woman right now. It's not always easy for me, okay? But hear my heart. But hear my heart on this. But there is a truth about a woman. There's a life about a woman. She's discovering herself. She's knowing herself. Know thyself, know thy creator is kind of a famous way to say it. So where did that come from? Jesus says it came from him. There's not supposed to be an argument that can contradict this. If you can find one, then we got to reevaluate Jesus. I stay with Jesus. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter um, 11, verse 19. And then we'll end with some applications towards you. How many got some theology here today? Amen. Go to Proverbs 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 19. Truly the righteous obtain life, but whoever pursues evil finds death. No matter where you fall on the spectrum of belief, once again, directing this towards our pluralistic friends, how many of you know that becomes true in their life whether they believe it or not? It's like, I don't believe in gravity. Well, jump off this building and tell us if that works. It doesn't. Gravity believes in you, right? Well, I don't believe life should be lived the way you all say it should be lived. Okay, let's check the suicide rate now of transgenders. Let's check the suicide rate of just college graduates right now. Let's check how the world is doing in all of these different metrics of health and happiness. Let's just look at our own friends right now. Are they more medicated than they've been before or are they less medicated? More medicated. Are they more confused or less More confused. Our doctors are confused. As I talked about last week, this, the, the rate of suicide in those uh, that are psychologists and psychiatrists is six times higher than the general population they're trying to help. Come on, people. I feel bad for them. You left God out of the equation. You're trying to heal a chemical brain without understanding there's a human soul. And guess what? That human soul came through Jesus. All answers aren't the same. Islamic answers aren't the same. Hindu answers aren't the same. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. If you do it his way, now listen, not only do you have life in the moment, you have eternal life. You don't do it his way. You suffer death, not only in this world, but in the world to come. As the book of Proverbs says, all who hate me love death. All those who hate God In that way, they love abortion. They love the death of the human species. They want to become animals, robots, AIs. They they have in their hearts a propitiation towards death when they reject God. And yet those who find God or God finds them and they find themselves in God, they begin to pursue life. They begin to pursue the things of life. The fruit of the Spirit are the best descriptions of what a healthy, happy life looks like. Can we go there quickly in Galatians chapter 5? The fruit of the Spirit. These are the things that produce more life. 
We are more stressed out than we've ever been, and yet God is asking us to trust him, and he'll give us life. But we don't think that works. We would rather teach our children, and I thank God for our Christian lawyers of Malcolm Baker who challenged this in the Chicago public schools. They would rather teach them transcendental meditation than how to pray and recite scripture and live for Jesus. God have mercy. God, I say, God have mercy. Anybody in agreement with that? We need mercy on our schools. This is ridiculous. We'll put all of these things into our schools. We'll even let them imams come in and teach them about Islam. But Christianity, we already know about that. Leave that aside. Those are the hate mongers. We'll let drag story hour come in because we have to see every fetish now put before our children, but we can't have people come in and teach abstinence because then they say statistically it doesn't work. Listen to, my, listen to me, my friend. I'll agree with you in that one sense. Sinners can't keep abstinence. I agree, but we need to prioritize sinners becoming saints, and then they'll be virgins. Amen? The reason why it doesn't work right now is, is because we're doing it the wrong way. And this is why I say to my abstinent teaching friends, you have to teach conversion. Otherwise, abstinence will not work for sinners. <laughs> Amen? Can I hear an amen to anybody who relate to that? Telling them the naughty things of sex and, you know, don't do all that. It's just going to reverse on them uh, and make them want to do it more. No. Teach them you have to be born again. And that's why many of you here are virgins because of what Christ has done in your life. You're going to remain virgins. Or like me, when I became saved, you're a born-again virgin. And I remained one for 10 years until salvation. Amen? By the fruit of the, but the fruit of the Spirit is what? Everybody say this out. Is what? Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's life. Where else do you find those things except not in Jesus Christ? That's why I say to you, my brothers and sisters, please do not be ashamed to talk this way in your university, to your CEO, on the job, to your employees, or wherever it's appropriate. I want you to do that with the wisdom of God. Daniel could get along in Babylon, you know, and I want you to get along here, okay? The only thing they had against him is that he kept his faith, and if that's what they have against you, go for it. But don't be a jerk. But hear my heart when I say this. In all ways, point this out to people. The reason why we don't have a good way on our job, it's just too much corruption, you could say to your boss, is because we're not following the ways of God. The reason why there's too much conflict in the, you know, the employees is because we're not putting the truth of God here. We need the truth of God among our people. And the reason why we don't have peace, the reason why we need four retreats and two life coaches and gurus to come is because we don't have the life of God being forwarded here. We need to be able to put that in every sphere of influence. We need to remind people that when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he meant it, and when we apply it, it works. It's not true just because it works. This is not pragmaticism. It is true unrelated to our works. It is true all by itself. In other words, before there was ever a universe or anybody to apply these truths, God was still true. He was still the way and he was still the life. Amen? But now that we're here, this conforms to what we teach as sound doctrine. Now somebody say, make it plain. Amen. Amen. Now to you. What are you going to do? Because there are many ways that present themselves to you in life. And you're going to have to choose to do things God's way. There are many supposed truths that people are going to want to tell you, and you're going to have to choose God's truth. And there are many people who are going to give you ways to live and to have your life, but you are going to have to choose God's life. Just a few things that stick out to me to apply this to the body of Christ here. There's a way to have a marriage, brothers and sisters. And some of you call yourselves Christians, but you're not having it God's way. You allow too much tension in the home. You allow yourself to go to bed angry. You don't do date nights, you don't forgive, you hold grudges, and the Bible says in 1 Corinthians not to do that, and that's why your marriages suffer. It's not necessarily that you're not Christians or you're bad people, it's that you're not applying the way of God to your marriage. When I became married, married, married and uh, married at uh, 28, I was horrible at it. I wasn't good, but God taught me how to be married. 
God taught me how to have a godly marriage. From 28 to now, I'm learning, and I do things God's way. Otherwise, I will knock down the foundations I've built in 17 years. My dad always said it like this, it takes a lifetime to build a testimony, but a moment to lose it. I've never struck my wife or cussed out my wife, but how many know it could take a moment and that would change everything? Brothers or sisters, if that's you, you need to stop in Jesus' name and repent. If you're breaking the foundations of your marriage, maybe not so extreme as abuse and cussing each other out, but if you're not prioritizing daily devotions together, prayer times, at least over your meals, at least before you, you know, go to your separate jobs or, or go out of the house. If you're not doing these things, my brothers and sisters, there's a reason why the marriage is suffering. And it's also another thing with our children. Christians, oftentimes, we preach to all these other children. We go out here on the streets and we say all these things are wrong with our society. These kids need Jesus. And then our kids are not being given Jesus the right way. We need to teach our children through example. Amen? And parents, you shouldn't embitter your children even to the things of God. So I do my best with my children that have troubled attitudes. I try to teach them the things of God without making them embittered towards the things of God. Or as the Bible says, exasperate them. So there's a form of discipline that brings about a godly fruit. Even if they don't accept it, it's still a godly fruit in their life. I'm not saying parents are responsible for every uh, rebellious teenager. My parents were not responsible for my rebellion at 16 and onward. They had good fruit of discipline in my life. I can look back and say these were choices that I made. Amen? Otherwise, God would be responsible for Adam and Eve, and how many know he's not? Giving someone choice doesn't uh, doesn't take away their responsibility. God is responsible for giving us the choice. We're responsible for our choices. Don't twist it. I'm responsible for how I teach and train my children. They are responsible for their choices. And how many know you can make your choices but not your consequences? Those come whether you like them or not. And so, brothers and sisters, raise your children in the way of God and then children. Listen to me. Obey your mom and dad. Do not call yourself a Christian. Come here and then disrespect your parents even if they don't come here. Well, they're wicked fools and you said it in church and I called my mom a wicked fool. That does not work. That does not work. You must honor your parents. You must honor them and show them by your deeds of obedience you're a Christian, not by continually rebuking them. Show them that you're a Christian by doing good in school and valuing the things that we can all agree on. Your parents want you to stay out of trouble. They want you to treat your siblings right. They want you to be a help in the house and go out in the community and do something good. I'm sure every parent, whatever religious belief they have, wants you to do that. Do that and show them that as a Christian, you've done it better than any of the siblings and at any other time in your life now being a Christian. And then you give God the glory for your success. Daniel wasn't showing up to the job late and then saying, hey, I'm a Christian or a follower of God. No, no. Daniel was doing so well that the only way they could bring him down is to try to get him to stop praying. Do you see the difference, brothers and sisters? Do not let your good be evil spoken of because of these character issues. Children, obey your parents. Parents, raise up your children in the way of God. When we come to the truth, many of you here, and I don't mean this as a disrespect because I know our church and I love the church. If you look bad, I look bad. So I don't say this against you to make you feel bad. But many of you do not understand the the difference between good and evil. You haven't learned to discern it yet. You think evil is stronger than good. You think temptation is stronger than God's way out. The Bible says, you are to pray. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Those are real prayers. You say you believe it, but your behavior shows otherwise. There is no reason for any man here to ever look at pornography again. There is no reason for anyone here to be addicted to sin again. Then you have arguments, you have this, God has deliverance. You can have your argument or you can have deliverance. Are you listening to me, brothers and sisters? There is a truth that sets you free. Did not Jesus already teach us that? He said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you or make you free. How I know you as a Christian don't get the truth is you're not free. 
Now, once again, people then want to be spec inspectors in my life, point out my issues. The difference between my issues and your issues for the ones that I'm talking about is that I repent, own them, and make no excuses. That's the difference. I don't make the excuse. Many of you here, that means more than three or four or five, a dozen of you, 20, however many in this room, you make excuses for your sin. How do I know? Some of you are in 101, which should only take a few months, and you've been in it over a year. It's a discipleship course of basic Christianity, and you're not getting it. It shouldn't take that long. It's not that you're that difficult. It's not that your sin is that strong over you. It's you just don't know the truth yet. You haven't received it yet. You know it here maybe, but not in here. Truth will set you free. You can't say Jesus is my Savior when you're living in sin. Jesus saves his people from sin. Now, what does 1 John say? If as a believer you live in sin and you confess, you have an advocate, you should have peace with God. But I'm talking about the kinds of sins that you should be fearful of in Hebrews 10, 26, where you're willfully sinning. Willfully sinning. There's a difference between sinning in the sense of working out your salvation and another one where you give up on that aspect of your character and now you make excuses. I'm giving good pastoral care here as a holiness preacher, amen? I'm not here to just put you down as a holiness preacher. I know that's not helpful. I'm here to show you, go to Hebrews chapter 6, please, that the wise, the mature, know how to discern good from evil. Let us leave these elementary things behind, okay? And uh, it's at the end of chapter 5, rather. Go to chat, just scroll up just a little bit. Chapter 5, verse 14. I was teaching on this the other week. Got the chapters and verses confused. Look it. But solid food is for the who? The mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish what? Good from evil. You have to know that, brothers and sisters. And then lastly, let me just encourage some of you here. Life. Do not live beneath the call of God on your life. You can go to heaven broke, busted, and disgusted, or you can go to heaven more than a conqueror. Do not go to heaven missing your purpose. Every one of you has a purpose to be here, and you need to give it your all. Do not use laziness as, uh, do not use uh, spirituality as an excuse for laziness. Well, I go to church, I prayed about it, that's it. No, 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 do something about it. God gives you power through the prayer to now live it out by faith. Abraham had to go make love to Sarah to go see a baby come. You couldn't just say, well, if God's going to do it, he's going to do it. It wasn't going to be an immaculate conception. Can I hear an amen to that? Come on, brothers and sisters. He had to put in the work. And when you look at Jericho and the people of Israel, they had to march around. They had to put in the work. We're not saved by those works, but those works show forth our faith. Without those works, our faith is dead. So I believe that God's going to start a Bible college, do a great thing. We have the opportunity to start our own, LMC. You know, we do it by God's grace. We're taking that mission trip to Mardi Gras. There's only, you know, less than 30 there, but I'm doing, I'm doing everything that I can for it. I don't get discouraged by it. I mean, at times it's tempting, but I'm living life for Jesus. Life for Jesus should be exciting. It should be full of victories in the midst of defeats. We should get back up, amen? Setbacks are setups for what God is doing. You may be down, but you're not out. Live your life for God. Dream big. Where are your dreams? Where are your passions? What are the things you want to do for God? Do it. Put yourself out there. My dad wanted to write a book as a Christian. He wrote a book. Put it out there. You, you, want, you want to start a ministry. You want to help others. Put it out there. See what the Lord will do. You have to live this life in the fullness. Otherwise, it's going to pass you by so fast. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, I went to Bible college with people that said they're going to go back to the ministry, and they never have. Now we all got gray hair. Where are they now? Where's the fruit? Have I made mistakes along the ministry? Being in ministry, yes, but I'm here. 
I'm serving God. I'm, I'm bringing forth the best that I know how. Life is meant to be lived. If the devil, listen, if the devil can't get you to get out of your calling, he'll have you make it so spiritual you'll never realize your calling. Oh, I had this one friend. I raised him up by God's grace as an intern. He came with us. You know, he's my friend. And uh, now he's like, he's almost, uh, you know, 40. You know, I'm 46. I think I'm only about six years older than him. Every time I talk to him, well, I'm going to go to this ministry, and I'm going to go try this thing. And I go, brother, why don't you stick someplace and just do it? Just do it. Just, just go out and do it. See, if the devil can't get you to deny your calling, he'll have you chasing your tail. And then the other, other thing that I want to say about living life is that life is meant to be enjoyed. Everyone who knows me knows that I enjoy life. Even my haters know I enjoy life. Remember when they got me on COVID with a boat and they put that boat out there and wanted to make me feel so bad for having a boat? Shame on you, Pather. You can't have a boat. You're supposed to be wearing sackcloth with a monk haircut. You're not supposed to enjoy life. No, enjoy life. Enjoy the goodness of God. In the land of the living, the Bible says. He says, whatever you ask, you can have. We know that's clarified in other passages. According to his will. You want to have a good day off? Ask the Lord to bless your day off. Ask him to rejuvenate you as you do your hobby. We have brothers in here that love motorcycles, do hobbies like this. Uh, do whatever the Lord gives you, as uh, we'll learn a little bit more in Hebrews coming up. After you've given your tithe, it's all for you to enjoy with God's approval. As long as it's not it's against his will. But after you've given your tithe, you can eat and drink and spend it on whatever you wish, the Bible says. Find your passions in life and enjoy it because I'm telling you, being simply religious, not Christian. Christian will never get boring or burn you out, but being religious will. Being religious will. Trying to please others will. Say no if you can't do one of our outreaches. We get it. We'll make sure that there's one that you can do and there's ones that we're all supposed to do. But if you can't do it every week, I get it. If you can't do this every week, we get it. Here's what we ask of every member of the church so they can enjoy life. Come on Sundays, pick a life group, and then be a part of the big events that we do throughout the year. That's it. All of our other outreach, I think we have 10 a week. I get you can't do 10 a week. There's only seven days in the week, right? You can't do two a day, right? So we get all of that. And I get you can't go to every Bible study. You can't go to every prayer meeting. But here's the thing. You can balance your life so that you can do what God's called you to do and enjoy it. I don't feel condemnation or guilt when I'm not at something that was amazing. Like Juan did something yesterday. It was amazing. I'm, I'm not guilty over that. My wife had a doctor's appointment. I had to stay home. You know, that's not a big deal to me. But you know what? I do commit myself to the ministries that I'm a part of, and I keep my word. So enjoy life, keep a balanced life, and you'll see every day he's the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. Can we bless him? Come on, Daryl. Let's go. Band, matter of fact, let's all come up. Second service, they're a rowdy bunch. They're already in the back there. I see some of my brothers in suits. Is somebody getting married today? What's going on? Did y'all just plan this, or what's going on? Okay, so it's no marriage happening? The idea was to, the intent was to show brotherhood or unity in, in amongst men in Amen. the church. So, yeah. Thank you. Amen. I, I see some unity today then. I see some unity. Look at this man. These brothers right here looking good. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful day. We now pray for the application of the word. If you are not a Christian, as everyone standing with me, please. If you're not yet a Christian, would you ask Jesus to be your way, truth, and a life? If you've come from a pluralistic background or you've struggled in any of the ways we've spoke about, would you ask the Lord to forgive you, repent of your sins, and be born again? For those of you who are already Christians, has anything applied during the time of application? Seek the Lord right now to strengthen you. If you have other applications that I didn't mention but the Lord is speaking to you now, pray them out. As the band and altar workers are coming, we're going to close out in prayer and worship. Second service folks will be welcome to come in in just a moment.
But right now, let's apply this word. Father, we thank you that you're the way out of every situation we're in. You're the truth to every error that we ever face in life. And you are the life in the midst of everything we suffer or death itself. We pray now for your way, your truth, your life to permeate our lives, to saturate us. Make it real in our hearts today that there's nobody like you, that you save, you sanctify, you cleanse from the inside out. Pray for a few folks that you need, uh, they, they need to get saved as well. If you're already a Christian, Lord, we pray for salvation. For those who don't know you're the way, the truth, and the life yet, may they come to know and love you. Pray for salvation in our families, in our community. Father, if it wasn't for you, we wouldn't be here and we would never have known Jesus. Jesus, if you would not have come and served the Father, we wouldn't know forgiveness. And Holy Spirit, if you would not have come and be in our hearts and to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment, we would not know how to serve God. A few moments right now, blessed Father, Son, and Spirit, talk to God through Jesus and ask for his power to come through the Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And everybody said, amen. If you believe he's the way, the truth, and the life, can you give it up for Jesus? Hallelujah. First service, you are dismissed out this side door. If you need prayer, please come up before you go. We're not in a hurry. Second service, folks, you can start coming in. We're going to.